Hey, Alex, I've got a question. You always want to read the best and most up-to-date stuff on world news and foreign affairs, right? Of course, I got to read the best stuff so I can serve up the best analysis right. on the show. That's kind of how our show works. Right. All right, so that's just where you get your information and analysis from. So you can do, you know, our job. But when it comes to protecting your financial future and personal livelihood, would you settle for a subpar investing tool? Um, no. No, presumably you also want the best stuff for your money. Right. Okay, well, listeners, like Alex, you want to consume top-notch geopolitical commentary, and when it comes to something equally and honestly probably more important for your life, like your financial health, you shouldn't settle for an average investing tool. There's a smarter way to manage your money. Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for average. They use cutting-edge technology to build personalized portfolios and help you make more from your investments. Then they guide you along the way with advice to help you make smart financial decisions. All of this for one low, transparent fee. Plan for retirement. Reach your financial goals. Make the most of your money. Don't settle for average investing. Demand better. Betterment. Outsmart average. Investing involves risk. Worldly listeners can get up to one year managed free by visiting betterment.com slash worldly. That's betterment.com slash worldly. Hello and welcome to Worldly on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Hi. Well, today we're going to give you an update on something really important. Brexit the United Kingdom's process of leaving the European Union. The best way to think about Brexit is kind of like a divorce. There are two partners, the EU and Britain, uh, and they have these deeply intertwined lives, rules and regulations that are all set together, legal codes, and so on. But before the two partners split up, they need to agree on how things are going to work after the divorce. And currently, those negotiations are going just super badly. Uh, So, Jen... Why are things such a mess? So just to back up, before you can even get to the negotiations with the EU on how to break up, you know, what the terms of the divorce are, you ideally would like to have it all decided what you want from the divorce, right? The problem is that we're not actually talking about two individuals. We're talking about the UK and the EU. But within the UK, Theresa May, the prime minister, is actually fighting with her own party, because they're actually divided amongst themselves about what they actually want from the EU, what they want to get out of this deal. So not only is May having to go to the European Union and, like, figure out how this is all going to work out and get them to agree to, like, all these different things, she's also fighting with her own party to get them to agree to literally something. The disagreement here is over the terms of Brexit, obviously, and the debate is whether we should have a quote-unquote hard Brexit or a quote-unquote soft Brexit? Let's start with the hard Brexit, which is the easiest to understand in the sense of the UK and EU basically have a hard split. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Alex, for those of you listening at home, just chucked a water bottle across the room. Yeah. I'm so angry about hard Brexit. No. uh, (laughs) The UK and EU just completely separate. This is the divorce where they keep nothing in common. That would be very difficult because, as you mentioned earlier— the UK and EU are, have very intertwined regulatory lives, and so doing that it would cause substantial pain and substantial hardship, but it's what a lot of people in May's party want. 
the soft Brexit is kind of a compromise where the UK would keep some of the laws that the EU has imposed on trade, maybe on migration to a certain extent, but the rest is gone. And there's and the rest, by the way, is just a whole bunch of minutia. So it's really more of a philosophical debate about how far away from the EU do we get. This fight's been going on since June of 2016 when the referendum on Brexit was held. And there have been splits in both major British parties, the Conservatives and Labour, but the Conservatives are in power, and so they're the people that matter. And so it got so bad that in July of this year, after, again, this is over two years since the referendum, Theresa May had to lock her government in an estate called Checkers. This is the most British thing ever because it's spelled Q-U-E. Did they play the game? They did not play the game. They didn't play the game? Not that I'm aware of. Anyway, they came up with this plan, right? But not everybody likes the plan because it's a soft Brexit plan. Right. So Theresa May, just to to kind of paint the picture here, she literally locked her entire, like, political party in this country estate, took their phones and locked them away in a drawer and said, all right, nobody's getting out of here until we work out a plan. That's literally detention. Yeah, or a high school lock-in. It's a high school lock-in. It's a high school (laughs) lock-in. It's, like, significantly less making out. But so— As far as you know. They came to this agreement called the Checkers Agreement, and Theresa May comes out of there, and she's like, all right, we're doing this plan. It's it's a soft Brexit. It's basically, we're going to stay, you know, the UK, we are going to stay still as part of, like, the trading market that is, like, the European common market. Um, and all of, like, the regular trading rules are basically still going to apply. We're still going to abide by those. But we'll have our say on other things like issuing visas and like controlling our borders and and some of the kind of other more contentious issues. Now, she thinks she has this great plan, right? Except that like immediately several members of her cabinet, including her foreign secretary, Boris Johnson, completely revolt and quit her government in protest. So she has this like broken plan that not everybody signed on to. And this is what she is now trying to take to the EU and go... Hey, guys, you want to negotiate on this plan? Yeah, and one of the people that revolted uh, was a guy named David Davis, who was the Brexit secretary. His whole job was to help negotiate this deal. And after he left, he went on the BBC to talk about the state of the negotiations. And it's worth listening to his comment because you really get a sense of what the ideology of the people that want a really tough Brexit feel. The Chequers proposal uh, is actually almost worse than being in kind of two things there. One, notice that he calls it a checkers proposal. Everyone in the UK kind of calls it a plan to effectively say that... This is our plan. This is our plan. Here's what we're coming to the EU on. But he's kind of going like, well, versus the proposal, let's be real. Like, this is the way the UK government is putting itself forward. Like, here, EU, will you take this? As opposed to, this is the UK stance. We've all agreed to it. Let's go forward. And the second is, worse than being in. So, in effect... What May is dealing with within her own party are people that would rather see basically the hardline stance or nothing at all. It's really hard to make a compromise with those kinds of folks in your own party when they're taking that kind of hard stance. I can't emphasize enough how crazy it is for David Davis to go on TV and trash the proposal that the, that his government came up with while he was Brexit minister. He quits basically over this thing. And it's the equivalent of Jeff Sessions being like, 
I'm out of the government because I hate the wall now. The wall sucks. We can't do it. Like, this is the signature thing the government is promising to deliver on, right. which, which is Brexit. And, and the Brexit minister is quitting over it. The degree of division is unrivaled internally in any other developed country I can think of on its top issue. Right. And so that's the state of play that May is trying to deal with at home while simultaneously having to make trips to Brussels and to Salzburg and all these cities to meet with the senior leaders of the EU and try to negotiate. And it's not like the EU doesn't know this is going on, right? So they have leverage. So let's talk a little bit more, I guess, about what she's actually trying to do with the EU. Like, what are they fighting about? So the EU and the UK have a basic disagreement. And it, there's a kind of push and pull to it that makes it difficult for the two sides to ever reconcile, right? So the two main issues in Brexit, there are lots of them, but the big, two biggest ones are trade. To what extent will the UK continue to benefit from being involved in the EU's single market? They're free trade agreement, basically, but more in depth than a free trade agreement. Right. So we're talking basically in practical terms, like little or no tariffs, right, between countries. So like we all agree not to slap border taxes on each other's goods so we can all collectively do well economically. You're almost talking about like a big United States, right? States don't put necessarily yes. put tariffs on each other exactly. and you can move within states. It's, it's effectively like that. Right. Exactly. And the movement is the second big thing, which is migration. Uh, the EU's basic credo is the free movement of goods and people across borders. That means allowing people to move between EU countries. Britain hates that second part. The best social science we have, and I was in the UK right before the Brexit agreement. I've read the research extensively. The best evidence here suggests that Britons voted to leave the EU because they were angry about migration. That, that is the core reason, the fundamental reason the referendum succeeded. So for any Brexit to work, they need to get control, as they would put it, over their borders in terms of migration. But the EU isn't thrilled. Right. This checkers deal that May is bringing to the EU is basically, without getting into the details, it's her asking the EU to have their cake and eat it too, right? She wants to have all of the benefits of being part of the EU and the trade benefits and the economic benefits without the sacrifices that include taking in migrants and accepting like the free flow of people from other countries into the UK. Sacrifices in quotes. Migration is actually good right. for the British economy. Right. That, again, yeah. But that's the way that, that she's kind of presenting it. That's the way that they see it. Like, you can't enjoy all these benefits without agreeing to the stuff you also don't like. Like, you're, you're in or you're not. Just deal with it, right? So that's how I feel. Like, I'm an EU citizen, right? And I've got a lot of issues with the EU. But the two two things I definitely don't have an issue on are trade and migration for one simple reason. It is the whole purpose of the EU for you to want to have some sort of change on the trade and migration issue. You are effectively destroying the entire idea behind it. Let's not forget that the reason the EU exists is because people on that continent have fought for centuries and it culminated in World War II. And the whole point of the EU really was to make sure that people came together and didn't fight each other anymore. And the UK agreed to be a part of the union, part for that reason. So now that they're trying to leave because they're afraid of Syrian immigrants coming over, like, I'm sorry, you already agreed to join. I get that there are countries that have different kind of deals with the EU. I get that. Norway is the typical example. The UK agreed to join, and they are one of the premier members of the union. So for them to leave, it effectively destroys the entire project. They have to know that exists. And I find this to be an insanely irresponsible 
thing to do because you're not only putting, I get that there are domestic political pressures and, and, and the feelings of the UK, believe me, I get that. But there's a bigger picture at work here. The, the EU is that bigger picture. And they're possibly harming the lives not just of people in the UK, but people all throughout the continent. Right. And that's exactly, just to bring it back, that's exactly what the EU is saying. Like, that's their entire argument. The reason that they are not just willing to take whatever May says, like, oh, okay, we'll look at this checkers agreement. Yeah, that sounds all right. It's not just because they're trying to be dicks, right? Like, it's not just because they just want to create chaos. They're very concerned for existential reasons that if they give Britain this really sweet deal and basically just let them do whatever the hell they want and leave willy-nilly and suffer no consequences, that it'll send a signal to other countries who are considering maybe leaving and that it will essentially start a cascade that will end in the complete collapse of the European Union and the entire European project as we know it. So it's not just like a fight about technical details. It's an existential fight we're talking about here. So even if uh, the Conservative Party gets its act together and unifies behind the Chequers Agreement, it's not clear that the EU would agree to it. In fact, my sense is they probably wouldn't. But there's only a short amount of time to get this agreement done, right? There's a March 29th deadline. And... If they don't come to a deal by then— Meaning or, the UK and, and the EU, yeah, let with, alone the UK himself. With, with itself, yeah. Then there's something called a no-deal Brexit, which is just chaos, right? right? Like, there's no one knows what the rules are because there's no agreement on how UK law will continue to work or what its relationship with the EU will be. And the projections from experts are that this would be literal chaos. Right. So basically, just so we're clear, on that date, the UK's membership— in the EU just straight up expires. Deal or no deal, regardless of what they've worked out or haven't, it stops dead. And that, like Zach was saying, could create literal chaos and serious consequences for everyday human life. The reason of the chaos, by the way, is because the UK up till now, being a member of the EU, has led up a lot of its laws and regulations to the body, as we mentioned earlier. So when the, the membership expires, those laws go away, and then no one really knows how to govern normal things, like, how do you import medicine? Like, do my driver's licenses still work? Um, <laughs> where do I get food? I mean, the trading practices, shipping practices, all these kinds of things were regulated by EU law, or a lot of them were. And now the UK basically has to redo its entire law. Just like imagine if American law or practices like went away overnight, how would we govern ourselves? This is the kind of situation they'll be dealing with. To put it in concrete terms, there is a fear that planes will not be able to fly in and out of Britain because the airline regulations are so unclear that airlines won't know how to operate and the rules under which they can fly. The Royal Air Force has needed to put together a plan to distribute medicine, airdropping it around the country, because... They don't know how they're going to get enough medicine into the country, and they need to distribute this stuff. And and also, in, in one more concrete and really scary thing, there are 3 million EU citizens who are living in the UK and 1 million UK citizens who are living elsewhere in the EU, right? And living, working, just being regular people. All of a sudden, on March 29th, if there's no deal— these people's lives evaporate, right? There's just no sense as to what the legal permissions for them will be or how they will continue to work or survive or do any of the things one needs to do yeah, they to be would, a real person. They would literally lose all of the automatic rights and protections that they enjoy overnight. So think of a surgeon, right, operating in a hospital. They're getting ready to do surgery, but all of a sudden, overnight, their medical license, because it may have been 
accredited through the EU because that's how you go through getting all your licenses and stuff because we're all in the European Union. These We have all the same rules. All of a sudden, they're not sure if they're even legally allowed to practice medicine inside the UK. So we're talking people standing there with like a scalpel ready to go and going, oh, shit, I don't know if I can do this. So very tangible consequences if they don't reach a deal. So the UK can't agree among itself as to how to Brexit. The EU and the UK are not close to a deal. And if we hit the March 29th deadline, it's complete chaos. Nobody's really sure what's going to happen or how this will work. Recently, the opposition Labour Party in the UK voted to endorse having a second referendum that might cause Britain to stay in the European right, Union. Right, so literally a Brexit do-over. Remain. Remain. Or Braxies. Brax- look, look, none of this is clear. Could be Braxies, could be Remain, could be hard Brexit, could be checkers. It, it just, like, it's so hard to say. And we will definitely, definitely cover this topic again on Worldly before the March 29th deadline. Coming up next on Elsewhere, we're going to talk about a very strange issue about a Marxist club in China. Every week, Worldly takes you around the globe to talk about foreign affairs. Coming up next, hear an advertiser segment about a topic that feels foreign to so many people, your finances. Do you know the emotion most often associated with money? Anxiety. (laughs) Anxiety, right? We've all felt that. But where does it come from? There's kind of a couple of different components to it. Some of them are really practical and they're valid, right? Like money is the ability to buy things that you need. We have other components of anxiety about money, which are more about just the social and psychological components of it. You can see other people spending money, but not other people saving money. That's Dan Egan. He's the director of behavioral finance and investing with Betterment. When you sign up to Betterment, we're going to ask you a lot of questions that are just practically useful. You know, like, are you married? Where do you live? How much money do you make? Because that influences what are the best account types to use? What kind of tax breaks can you use? How much do you need to be saving and over what period of time? According to Egan, the results of this can be summed up in one word. Uh, Elation. When you have that sense of accomplishment of having hiked up a very large mountain and gotten to the top and you can see for miles, it really pays off a lot more than you expect and those kind of memories stick with you for longer. Find out more about Betterment's personalized solutions. Go to betterment.com slash vanity to get up to one year managed free. Betterment, outsmart average. Please remember investing involves risk. This has been advertiser content from Betterment. Thanks for that note from Betterment. To learn more about their tools, visit Betterment.com slash Worldly. Hello and welcome back. For Elsewhere this week, we're going to Beijing, home to China's most prestigious university, Peking University. Just recently, the university threatened to close its student Marxist society for trying to organize workers. Uh, One member of the club had already been arrested by China's government, which is officially Marxist, to be clear— for participating in labor organizing. That is to say, they arrest Marxists for acting like Marxists. All right, Alex, uh, walk us through the full irony here. So yeah, students were at a tech factory. They were trying to organize a union. And what has effectively happened is the authorities were kind of like, um, no, thanks, you can't be doing that. And that's odd, especially in a country whose official ideology is communism like and, and and workers' rights. It's it's literally like kind of the opposite of what the, the country's been built on. Right. Peking University literally has a department of Marxist studies. That's rough, a rough translation. But like they they study Marxist ideology there. Like that's that's a whole thing. And then people are acting on it and they're like, no, fuck you. 
Right. I mean, you know, it's controversial enough here in the U.S., which is, again, in case anyone's not clear, not officially a communist country. What? It's, you know, still controversial enough for, like, things like union busting and trying to, like, we still have rights to protect union workers and, like, the right to organize in, in most states, things like that. You'd think that, like, in an official communist government that is literally created to protect and elevate the rights of workers to collectively come together in a commune, so to speak, and organize for their rights, that they would be, I don't know, supportive of workers literally and students coming together to organize for their rights. But there's a reason why, right? Like, this isn't just like some random thing that they just decided to pick on these kids, right? China's economy includes a significant manufacturing component. Part of what allows them to succeed and has reduced poverty in that country is exporting a lot of goods produced at relatively low cost. But that's sort of inconsistent with advanced labor organizing. So the kind of capitalism that because China you have has to embraced— pay more money to people when they— Organize and have rights, right. right? Just to clarify. Yeah, the kind of capitalism that China has embraced, this sort of state-run model that isn't really Marxist, is really organized around these sort of state-run corporations and a little bit of privatization, but is inconsistent with the idea that the economy should be governed for and by the proletariat, right? That's just not how China operates. Well, this so worldly listeners will remember we talked about China at length last week. One of the things that we— somewhat touched on but didn't get into is that Xi Jinping's China is very authoritarian. And so the second you start having any sort of criticism against the way the economy works, against really anything— Any kind of challenge to the status yeah, quo, Any right? kind of challenge to the status quo, you get squashed, even if it is abiding by, like, the official principle of the country, which is communism. So it's it's a country that says it's very communist, but at the end of the day is a regular authoritarian country. Well, and that's the, the weirdness of this entire thing, right, is you have an official ideology. Chinese leader Xi Jinping just went to Peking University recently and gave a speech about how the university is, like, the center of Marxist thought, more or less. Clearly. And then there's this obvious dissonance between what the government says it's about and it continues to use this Marxist language in public speeches and propaganda and, and what it actually does, which is act like an authoritarian capitalist country. It's, it's just kind of like the perfect encapsulation of how China has changed from like a, you know, pure kind of ideologically driven communist state to becoming this weird hybrid that we have now today in which rights of Basically, no one are respected if they challenge the government. And we'll leave it there. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Uh, and I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review. And with that, goodbye. Bye. The Financial Times is one of my favorite newspapers in the world. They do big picture analysis, really great in-depth reporting, awesome interviews. I, I really enjoy reading their stuff and I learn a lot about the world, just you know, perusing their pages. One of the cool sections in the Financial Times is their weekend section. Each week, FT Weekend brings together an intelligent mix of news, compelling stories, and global lifestyle journalism. They're answering the big questions like, is mind control the tech industry's greatest invention? 
it sounds like, like a weird question to be asking, but the FT will deliver an interesting answer. And so to read the article on mind control and a selection of other stories, visit fd.com slash open minds. That's fd.com slash open minds. <laughs> 